0: Welcome to this audio edition of Philip Usher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts on Thursday, December 14th through Saturday, the 16th, feature guest conductor Semyon Bitschkoff and violinist Renaud Capuçon. The program includes Carnival Overture by Antonin Vorjak, Saint-Saëns' Violin Concerto No. 3, and after intermission, Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 4. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the saint Violin Concerto No. 3, a work lasting about 29 minutes. saint was one of music's astonishing prodigies, an early bloomer, a quick study, and the stuff of legends. At the age of two, he observed, quote, the symphony of the kettle with its slow crescendo so full of surprises and the appearance of a microscopic oboe whose sound rose little by little until the water had reached a boiling point. At four, he performed parts of one of Beethoven's violin sonatas in a Paris salon, and he began to compose at the age of six. He made his public debut in the Salle Pléal in Paris at the age of 10, playing a piano concerto by Mozart and a movement from Beethoven's C minor piano concerto, and offering as an encore to perform, from memory, any one of Beethoven's 32 sonatas the audience requested. By 13, he had been admitted to the Paris Conservatory, where he was an award-winning star pupil. He knows everything, but he lacks experience, Berlioz wrote. Unlike the young Mozart, Saint-Saëns was not exploited as a child. His widowed mother saw that he was given a serious, well-rounded education. He studied Latin and read the classics. He studied mathematics and science, and he developed lifelong fascinations with astronomy and archaeology. His published writings include essays and books on botany, Roman drama, and the history of the postage stamp. Sassons quickly grew into an artist of maturity and taste, both as a performer and as a composer. Berlioz called him an absolutely shattering master pianist. And Proust wrote that his playing was free of the writhings, shakings of the head and tossing of hair that adulterate the purity of music with the sensuality of dance. sansons played his second piano concerto with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in November 1906 to a full house. We have had several notable presentations of the graceful work, the Tribune critic wrote, but none of them has been technically more gratifying or interpretively more elegant than the one he offered yesterday. Sason’s musical interests were also wide-ranging, and at a time when old music was not yet fashionable, he was a great advocate of composers including Bach, Handel, and Gluck. He helped convert Berlioz to the Bach cause. He also was a great defender of contemporary music, particularly that by Wagner, who lacked French champions, and of Liszt. In 1860, he astonished Wagner by playing huge chunks of Tristan and Isolde from memory at the piano. Eventually, his sympathy for modern music waned. He was among the outraged audience members at the premiere of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring in 1913. Although he outlived both Mahler and Debussy, he had no use for either composer's music. Sansons was a natural composer of concertos because he himself was something of a showman. When he began this, his third violin concerto, in 1880, he had already composed four concertos for piano and one for cello, many of them relatively light, virtuoso vehicles of indisputable charm. This was the era of his best and most popular writing, including the organ Symphony, Carnival of the Animals, and the opera, Samson and Delilah, and the Third Violin Concerto has long been included in their company. It is his last concerto for violin, although he kept composing and performing to the end of his life four decades later. He played in public for the last time just four months before his death. His career is one of music's longest and most productive. The third violin concerto was composed for Sasson's fellow composer virtuoso, Pablo de Sarasate, who was the soloist at the premiere. He also introduced Sasson's first violin concerto two decades earlier. There are the three conventional movements, but nothing about Sasson's treatment is traditional. The violin enters up front after just a few measures of atmospheric tremolo in the orchestra and begins the brilliant finale with a dramatic solo like an operatic recitatif. The middle movement is a supple, flowing barcarolle. There are abundant virtuoso challenges throughout in the violin part, but here the fireworks are less exhibitionistic and more thoughtfully woven into the design of the whole than in the previous two concertos. There is an unexpected brass chorale near the very end before the violin carries the movement to its fiery and virtuosic conclusion. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Saint-Saëns' Violin Concerto No. 3. And now on to Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 4, a work lasting about 40 minutes. Brahms' Good Housekeeping has denied us an unfinished Fifth Symphony to set beside Mahler's 10th and Bruckner's ninth, two magnificent symphonies left incomplete at their composers' deaths. We know that Brahms was working on a Fifth Symphony as early as 1890 during a trip to Italy. Apparently, he soon gave up on it. During the last years of his life, Brahms conscientiously destroyed or recycled any musical scraps cluttering his desk. He admitted using the opening of his Fifth Symphony in the string quintet, Opus 111, the work he intended to be his last. It is high time to stop, he wrote to his publisher in the note that accompanied the score. Although he went on to write a handful of great chamber works, he didn't return to orchestral music and destroyed all remaining evidence of a Fifth Symphony. Brahms' fourth symphony is his final statement in a form he had completely mastered, although for a very long time he was paralyzed by the nine examples by Beethoven. Even Beethoven chose not to go beyond his own ninth, although he toyed with a new symphony two years before his death. It's difficult to imagine what Beethoven or Brahms might have done next, since their last symphonies seem to sum up all either knew of orchestral writing. The difference is that Beethoven's choral symphony opened up a vast new world for the rest of the 19th century to explore, while Brahms reached something of a dead end. But what a glorious end it is. Brahms was never one to forge new paths. Like Bach and Handel, he added little to the historical development of music, and yet he always seemed to prove that there was more to be said in the language at hand. Brahms' Fourth Symphony begins almost in mid-thought, with urgent, sighing violins coming out of nowhere. It often disorients first-time listeners. Brahms meant it to. He originally wrote two preparatory bars of wind chords and later crossed them out, letting the theme catch us by surprise. The violins skip across the scale by thirds, falling thirds and their mirror image rising sixth, a shorthand way of telling us that the interval of a third pervades the harmonic language of the entire symphony. It also determines key relationships. The third movement, for example, is in C major, a third below the symphony's E minor key. Brahms has a wonderful time playing with the conventions of sonata form in the first movement. He seems to make the classical repeat of the exposition, but only eight measures in alters one chord and immediately plunges into the new harmonic fields of the development section. Listen for the great point of recognition at Triple P, the quietest moment in the symphony with which Brahms marks the recapitulation. For twelve measures, the music falters like an awkward conversation, the winds suggesting the first theme, the violins, not seeming to understand. Suddenly they catch on, and picking up the theme where the winds left off, sweep into a full recapitulation capped by a powerful coda. In the Andante Moderato, Brahms takes the little horn call of the first measure and tosses it throughout the orchestra, subtly altering its color, rhythm, and character as he proceeds. A forceful fanfare in the winds introduces a juicy new cello theme. Turns out to be nothing more than the fanfare played slowly. Near the end, shadows cross the music. The horns boldly play their theme again, but the accompaniment suggests that darkness has descended for good. The lightning flash of the Allegro Giocoso proves otherwise. This is music of enormous energy lightened by an unabashed comic streak, unexpected from Roms, normally the most sober of composers. Here, he indulges in the repeated tinklings of the triangle, and he later boasted that three kettledrums, triangle, and piccolo will, of course, make something of a show. Midway through, when the first theme's thundering left foot is answered by the puny voice of the high winds, the effect is as funny as anything in Haydn. Throughout his life, Brahms collected old scores and manuscripts, the autograph of Mozart's great G minor symphony was a prized possession, and he studied their pages to see what history might teach him. More than once, he spoke of wanting to write a set of variations on a theme he remembered from a cantata by Bach, But no one before Brahms had seriously thought of writing a strict passicalia, a continuous set of variations over a repeated bass line to wrap up a symphony. Beethoven used a theme and variations in the finale of his Eroica Symphony in 1803, and Brahms himself wrote a passicalia to conclude the variations on a theme by Haydn. The finale to Brahms' Fourth Symphony isn't a musty academic exercise, but a brilliant summation of all Brahms knew about symphonic writing, set over 32 repetitions of the same eight notes. Trombones make their entrance in the symphony to announce the theme, loosely borrowed from Bach's cantata number 150, Nach dir Herr, verlanget mich, I long for you, O Lord. The cantata is no longer thought to be by Bach. To bring the ancient Passacaglia form into the 19th century, Brahms superimposes over his variations the general outline of sonata form, with an unmistakable moment of recapitulation midway through. A look at the finale in its entirety reveals the sturdy four-movement structure of the classical symphony. Brahms begins with eight bold and forceful variations, followed by four slow variations of yearning and quiet eloquence, an increasingly hectic dance-like sequence, and an urgent and dramatic final group that provides a triumphant conclusion. One can follow Brahms' eight-note theme from the shining summit of the flute line, where it first appears over rich trombones' harmonies, to the depths of the double bass, where it descends as early as the fourth variation, supporting a luscious new violin melody. Even in the twelfth variation, where the theme steps aside so the focus is on the poignant, solemn song of the flute, the spirit of those eight notes is still with us. And as Arnold Schoenberg loved to point out, the skeleton of the main theme from the first movement also appears in the penultimate variation, like the ghostly statue in Mozart's Don Giovanni. The finale is as magnificent and as satisfying as any movement in symphonic music. It's easy to assume that having written this, Brahms had nothing left to say. We'll never know whether this was so, or if in the end, he simply ran out of time. Program notes by Philip Husher on Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 4. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.